Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Amen. Acts chapter number four. Amen. I'm just going to read the first four verses and then allow you to be seated so I can finish reading the remainder of the verses. Amen. Don't want anybody passing out during the scripture reading. Acts 4 and verse 1, the Bible says, And as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They laid hands on them and put them in hold until the next day, for it was now eventide. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. I'll continue reading here in a moment. I'm going to talk to us tonight about none other name. We accept that, Lord, for our own personal selves. In Jesus Christ's name that I pray, amen. The church say amen. You may be seated. I'm continuing with verse 5 and go to 12, if you will. And it came to pass on the morrow that the rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were of the kindred of the high priests were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have ye done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which is become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none of their name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. And the church say amen. amen. That last verse, probably a very familiar verse to most. Chapter 4 opens up here tonight with just being a continuation of the story of Acts chapter number 3. It seems up to this point in time that Peter and John have received a very positive response from the crowd to both the miracle and the message that they had preached up unto this very time. But what happens now seems to be a changing of events where they were readily accepted up to this time. Now they are met with opposition and rather being positively accepted, they are accepted in a negative manner. And the fact of the matter is this, times and seasons really have not changed all that much because not everyone who hears this message will respond positively to this message. And that's something we all just have to come to terms with. But quite, quite oddly, it wasn't the Gentiles that received it negatively. It wasn't non-religious people that received it negatively. But those that had a problem with this were the religious leaders. It was the priest. It was, the Bible says, the captain of the temple and the Sadducees. These are religious people, religious leaders. They are the ones that had problem with this miracle, but probably more importantly, the message and the name that they brought up while they were preaching this message. 
the Bible says that the captain of the temple here was among them. And I'll give you a little information, a little inspiration tonight, all right? But we've got to have information as well. The captain of the temple was second in command right underneath the high priest uh, of, of the Jewish hierarchy. He is in second in command. It was his responsibility to keep track of what went on and around the temple. If there was any rioting, if there was any chaos that was to break out in or around the temple, he was the man to look into that to see what was going on, to see if he could bring order as he would see it back to the temple precincts and everything that was going on. And so we know because of this deed and this miracle of the lame man being able to walk, that stirred some things up around the temple. Man, isn't it great when things get stirred up around the temple? Well, it wasn't for the religious leader. Everything needs to be in order. Posh, posh. You know, let everything just be so. And so they came over here to just check out what this stir was that was going on among the people. A man brought some dignitaries with him as well, other priests. And so whenever you start reading some of the people that, that came alongside during this time, amen, in this chapter, we read that Annas the high priest the next day shows up. Caiaphas shows up. And when you begin to read about these different ones, you realize that these are some of the very same people that had Jesus on trial after he was taken in the Garden of Gethsemane. Annas and Caiaphas, both of them were there for Jesus' trial, had a hand, if you will, against him to try to condemn him, amen, for doing wrong. And so what we have here gathering in Acts number 4 is the same crowd that opposed the ministry of Jesus Christ we see now also opposing the work of the apostles amen and might i say that there are some that are even opposing the apostolic church even today and it's not that they're unsaved people or unbelievers i should say but it's that they are people that are religious amen so times have not changed really all that much if you'll remember when we started this series, we, we, we kind of uh, commented on how Jesus in his ministry throughout the Gospels, he had a lot of opposition from the Pharisees, those people who were fanatics about the law and keeping the law to the, the dotting of the I and the crossing of the T. And so he dealt with them a lot through the Gospels. But when we get to the book of Acts, things change up just a little bit. There's still a religious group that comes against him, but it is the Sadducees. They are seen all times in the book of Acts opposing uh, the apostles and opposing the work of the Lord in the book of Acts. The Sadducees were a wealthy group of people. They were wealthy religious leaders and they didn't believe, you heard me before, they don't believe they didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in spiritual beings. They didn't believe in a resurrection from the dead. For that matter, they didn't even believe a pending future that the Bible describes position concerning the church and the law if their position meant that their money was going to be in jeopardy then they would much rather compromise to keep hold of their money history repeats itself history repeats itself because there are people today there's plenty of religious people in a moment change their platform change their beliefs in order to accommodate what society has to say because if it's going to threaten their revenue or as they call it their seed money oh God woo then they'd much rather switch than jeopardize that 
we have modern day Sadducees. Whenever it comes to wealthy religious leaders that would much rather lose truth than lose wealth. Now, I'm not trying to be abrasive here, but I feel the Holy Ghost. My Bible says, Peter was taught to us that whenever we talk about ourselves, we were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but by the precious blood. Amen. And so I'm going to stand with the blood and let the monetary things just slide on by because I know the purchase price that was truly, amen, given. No preacher, uh, T.F. Tenney, many of you know his name, but old preacher T.F. Tenney said, what we're dealing with today is nothing more. We're dealing with the same old hag. She's just in a new dress. <laughs> and that's the reality of the picture, folks. Some of the things that we deal with in modern-day society are things that a generation before us and others dealt with concerning the church. She's just come dressed up in a new, in a new fad and a new element, but the core issue of it all is just something that is absolutely opposed to truth. Opposed to truth. And so here's the Sadducees, and alongside them are also the priests. The priests have a problem with these Peter and John guys being in the temple area. Uh, they presume these two people to be, as the scripture will later say, they presume them to be unlearned and ignorant men and that these guys were preaching and they were teaching in the temple area. And so what you got to understand, that temple area, man, that was for the religious priests. So these guys were teaching and preaching Jesus' name, if I can say it like this, on their turf. And so, since that's where they normally function, these priests did, and where they normally instructed, they were a little bit intimidated, I might say, because Peter and John was teaching or explaining and preaching, proclaiming the word of truth on their turf. So, so the Sadducees have a problem with these two, probably primarily because their subject matter is the resurrection from the dead. They don't believe in that. And not just that their, their subject matter is the resurrection from the dead, but they're using Jesus as the proof for the message. Jesus is the illustration. They were preaching, the Bible said, through Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. So that's not settling too well with them. And so what we have here, though, is as Peter and John both teach and preach, which I think is important. We see that throughout Scripture, that sometimes the Lord taught and sometimes He preached. And it takes both to have a good balance of the truth of God's Word. There are times, and we, and, 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 and it, we can do it on Wednesdays. I'm not saying Wednesdays are just teaching. There's times I've come in here and preached on Wednesdays, and everybody's like, oh my goodness, what is he doing? There's times that we come in, though, and we'll proclaim the word. And there's other times that we'll come in and we will explain or give instruction concerning the word. But nevertheless, when Peter and John taught and preached the pure word of God, notice what happens. It challenged the false ideas and dogmas of their day just when the word was presented. Amen. Just when the word's presented. Truth will stand all by itself. Yes, it Amen. It will. Just teaching and preaching the word will weed out untruths all along by itself. It truly is the word of God. Truly is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path.
Amen. It truly is. And so these religious rulers are so worried. They're so worried about the message that's being shared that they lock Peter and John up for the night until they can have a proper hearing or a proper trial, if you will, the next day. Amen. They said, man, what they're delivering right here is so powerful. That's what the writer, I believe Hebrews, tells us, that the word of God is quick, which means alive. It's alive and powerful. He said, what they're doing right here is so alive and so powerful that we're going to have to shut these guys up before there's a great influence that takes place. Well, what they didn't know, there was already a lot of influence that took place in just a few things that they had said because that's the power, not so much so of Peter and John, but that's the power of God's word. That's the reason why a challenge is if a person will constantly and repetitively expose them to solid biblical teaching and preaching, they cannot but be influenced by what they hear. Amen. It will happen. It'll rub off on you. Hallelujah. The Bible says, and I like this, so they're going to shut Peter and John up in, in, in hold over the night. But you know what? You can't do that to the word. The Bible says Paul one time speaking to Timothy. He was incarcerated on several occasions. But he spoke to Timothy one time in 2 Timothy 2.9. He says, wherein I suffer trouble. He's basically telling Timothy, I've suffered a lot for being a propagator of the gospel. I've suffered a lot because I've shared the message of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I've suffered as a result of that. As an evildoer, I have suffered even unto bonds. But he tells Timothy, he says, but the word of God is not bound. He says, they can put me in stocks and bonds. They can put me behind bars, whatever they want to do. But the message of Christ, it knows no bounds. Even while I'm in prison, look. If you were to go through and see how many epistles Paul wrote while he was in prison that got outside of the prison doors to churches, to individuals, and still have an impact on the church today is proof enough that the word of God is not, cannot, will not be bound. The comfort is this. They may already incarcerate people in foreign lands, but if they ever do that in our land, we have this hope. That the word of God will never be able to be bound. Amen. And so the Bible tells us in verse 4 that although they were taken away, that word of God, it's already been heard. And that many that heard the word believed. Insomuch that the number of the men, the Bible says, was 5,000. About 5,000. Now, now. The, the number of the men, sometimes the word men can be used for encompassing men and women, but there's a particular word here used in Acts 4 that it means just that, men, the males. So what that means is that's just 5,000 males. That's not including the females or, or, or families. And so whenever we started with 120 in the upper room and 3,000 more added that by the end of the day, now we have at least 5,000 males strong that has heard the word and believed upon the word that they have heard. Now, Peter and John, the next day, are you all right with my little narrative here? All right. Peter and John, the next day, we'll get into some interesting stuff in here in a bit. If this isn't interesting, but I think it is. So wherever you may fall. Peter and John are brought before the council. Known as the Sanhedrin. You've heard that terminology. The Sanhedrin council. 
which is basically the supreme court for the Jews, okay? For that sect of people. Yes, you had the Roman government, but then you had this Jewish religious system. And within their Jewish religious system, the Sanhedrin Council was like their supreme court within the religious, this religious system. And it consisted of about 70 members, a 70-member council that was mostly made up of Sadducees. Isn't this peculiar? This Jewish religious system is made up, this, this council is made up of mostly of people who didn't believe in angels, didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead, didn't believe in the pending future to come, didn't believe in none of that, but that's what's made up. The leader of this council would be the high priest. Whoever was presently high priest, they were the leader of that council. And there had been several priests that had been high priests before, and they're a part of this council, kind of like honorary, if you will, high priest. People had served in that capacity before. And what was then before, Peter and John was standing then before some of the most wealthy, some of the most intellectual, some of the most powerful Jews of their day when they stood before that council. And so not only that, Peter and John now are standing before, again, the very same court that condemned Jesus to death that got the ball rolling before he was ever given over to Pilate, that got the ball rolling with all the accusations. And Peter and John are going to address this crowd. Now, if I'm Peter and John and I'm scratching the back of my head, just think here with me a moment. If these folks condemned Christ to death, what are they going to do with us that are propagating the same message and even upholding this Jesus Christ that they condemned? I don't know about you, but we're in the hot seat, John. You know, <laughs> we're, we're kind of in the hot seat here. And what really begins to happen in Acts 4, what we see then is the start of the persecution of the early church. Amen. It really, this Acts 4 is really the first, if you will, persecution of the early church. Now, this was not to take them by surprise because Jesus had told them in the Gospels that they would indeed be persecuted Jesus said this stuff would happen will you allow me to share a few verses of scripture where he pointed that out good John 15 and verse 18 Jesus speaking to his disciples look now he says I'm just about three passages here if the world hates you you know that it hated me before it hated you if ye were of the world the world would love his own He's saying, if you were of the world, you wouldn't have no problem. There would be no opposition. Right. See, that's where the Sadducees wanted to stay. Mm -hmm. They wanted to stay religious, but worldly enough to get the acceptance so they have their cold cash. He said, but because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. He says, remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. Look, if they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my sayings, they will keep yours also. Look at verse 21. But all these things will they do unto you, look now, for my namesake. Because they know not him that sent me. Christ, all the way back in the Gospels, says you're going to be met with persecution because they persecuted me. And the reason why they are going to persecute you is because of my name. 
Look at another passage of scripture. Luke 12 and verse 11. Just 11 and 12. Just a couple of verses here. And when they bring you. This is what Christ spoke to him. He said when they bring you into the synagogues. Unto the magistrates and powers. Take ye no thought how or what thing ye shall answer. Or what ye shall say. For the Holy Ghost shall teach you in the same hour. What ye ought to say. He goes on in the same book. Luke 21 and verse 12 says this. But before all these they shall lay their hands on you. And persecute you. Delivering you up to the synagogues. And into prisons. Is it not happening in Acts 4? Being brought before kings and rulers. For my name's sake. That's what's happening in Acts 4. And it look what. We'll get to this in further weeks. This bears out verse 13. And it shall turn to you for a testimony. What the old saying is, you can't have a testimony if you don't have a test. Right? Uh-huh. Yeah, your test puts the test in testimony. Amen. It shall turn to you. He says, all this is going to turn for you for a testimony. Look now, 14. He says, settle it therefore in your hearts. I like that. You know what, you know what he's saying? Don't, don't, don't be overtaken with overmuch sorrow because of what's going on. Just settle everything already in your heart. Not to meditate before what ye shall answer. For I, here again, I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all, look now, which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay or resist. In other words, I'll give you something to say in the moment when you need to say it. And they will not be able to deny. They will not be able to muddy. Uh-huh. They will not be able to resist. They will not be able, they ain't going to be able to twist what's being said. They're going to just have to accept what you say as is they're not going to be able to tamper with the truth that's coming from your mouth and we'll see that in weeks to come and so persecuting persecution rather was coming because of his namesake just as jesus foretold they had a problem these people did these rulers they had a problem with the name listen they had a problem with the name because a name indicates a person and the person was not Caesar for them or the Roman government. Now just walk with me. So if the Sadducees and these religious rulers were painted in a light of not being supportive of Caesar, then the Roman government could come in and take their money. So we got a problem here because they're supporting a name, Jesus, that's tied to a person rather than supporting Caesar. All right? Now, listen, we all going to be a part of this. Even the church today is going to go through persecution. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 3, 12, Yea, all, everybody say all, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Someone say that to me. Own it. I hope that you live in godly in Christ Jesus. If you live godly in Christ Jesus, you shall suffer persecution. Well, you know, persecution has developed over time. Persecution has developed over time. It's taken on a different form than what it was during the early church's years. The early martyrs, as we would call them, that suffered for uh, the name of Christ, suffered in some of the most gruesome and most physical persecutions there ever was. Has anybody ever just read the Fox's uh, book of martyrs? Amen. You should just read it sometimes to read of the martyrdom that early Christians all the way back even in the first century suffered. If I will share a little bit what persecution was like in that day. Uh, th those people who were persecuted, they would be sewed up in the skins of wild animals 
and then have hungry dogs turned loose upon them. They would be dressed in wax, what was they called wax shirts, and attached to trees and be lit as human torches for some people in that day. Some were put on in prison on racks. They were seared. They were broiled. They were burned. Some Christians went through scourging to the extent that when they were finished scourging them, they had no flesh left on their body. There were some that went through stonings and hangings, being lacerated with hot irons. Even some were thrown on the horns of wild bulls. Others were beheaded. Some were put in hot slime pits, amen, in order for their lives to be taken from them. And so it seemed like to be a different level. Now, don't get me wrong. There are places today in foreign lands, there are still some of that very gruesome, very, very uh, physical torturing type of persecution taking place on Christians, but it takes a different form in America. You can still read of that. I think the newer renditions of the Fox of Book of Martyrs takes you all the way up to 2001 or something, even recounting the persecutions of people. Most of those, I tell you, are in lands that are overseas. But in America, the persecution takes on a different form. The foothold, if you will, of the adversary for Americans, this is my opinion, is that he lulls them into a place of complacency and indifference. I know we use that terminology, but I thought it important tonight just to really define them in case we just have a loose understanding what that means. Complacency means this, a feeling of quiet pleasure or security, often while unaware of some potential danger, defect, or the like. Self-satisfaction or smug satisfaction with an existing situation or condition. Indifference means lack of interest or concern, little or no concern, mediocre quality. Persecution over there, amen, might be on a physical plane. But I believe in America, it is on a spiritual, emotional plane that he will try to trap the church in America of getting to a place of complacency and indifference. For Americans, I believe he sees his best way to persecute the church is have them living a spiritual death in the church. Amen. It is the trap of the church of Sardis in the book of Revelation whenever he spoke to them and said, Thou hast a name that thou livest. He says, But thou art dead. Thou art dead. And so the, the persecution of our hour, amen, is that underlying, gentle undercurrent, if you will, that lulls us into a place of satisfaction and being a mediocre quality, being less than what we can be. Amen. Or taking pleasure with where we are than trying to ascend any higher or push any little harder. Amen. And so uh, there is a persecution for the church. But in our day in America, I believe, as I said, it takes on a different form. Amen. Is everybody doing okay? Now, here's something that I want to share here tonight that I think brings just some light to Acts chapter number four. Again, you know, in order to get a good grasp sometimes of Scripture, you got to ask yourself some questions. What was culture life? What was going on during that day? And so with all that being said, what we must understand here tonight is that at this point in time, from the birth of Jesus, continuing on from there, the world was ruled by the Roman Empire. It was ruled by the Roman Empire. 
And with the Roman Empire, they, they had people that ruled over them. Their emperors were called, as already referred to, Caesars. Their emperors were called Caesars. So a succession of Caesars were people that ruled over the Roman Empire. And although the Jews had a religious system that was under that and seemingly had their own set of government, they were still largely governed by the Roman Empire. And so with that being said, you got to understand the dynamics of the Caesars and what they thought themselves really to be and what the people, the Romans, and those under the empire thought of them to be. Caesars claimed that they were sent by the gods to renew creation. That's what they really felt like. They were sent by the gods to renew creation. As a matter of fact, Caesar Augustus, which we have in the Bible, Caesar Augustus believed that as the son of these gods, that he was a god that was incarnate on earth. You seeing something peculiar here? He believed he was a god incarnate on earth. Now, you can start to see and understand why they believe such an affront Whenever they started talking about this man, Jesus, who they speak as God in flesh. Mm -hmm. And so with this, he believed this. He thought he was a God incarnate on the earth, Caesar did. And that he was literally, this is their wording, that he was the prince of peace who had come to restore all of creation. Now get this. Now this is going to slap some of you in the face for Christmas, but just bear with me. He, he inaugurated, Caesar Augustus inaugurated a 12-day celebration called Advent to celebrate his birth. Anybody ever heard the 12 days of Christmas? Amen. And so Caesar claimed, the Caesars, they claimed that they were the ones who provided for everyone. They're the Roman government, strong arm. They are the ones that provided for everyone. Seven letters to the, uh, the churches of Revelation. Caesar's called on people to worship them uh, as divine saviors. They would offer up incense and sacrifice to them. And whenever a city acknowledged Caesar as their Lord, that city was called an ecclesia. Which we know in the New Testament that ecclesia is also the same word that is used for church. Now watch with me. So the Jesus movement is such an affront to their day, time, government, and the Roman Empire, because while they are crying out, Caesar is Lord, there's a group of people that's coming up that's saying Jesus is Lord. And as, as, as Caesar, whoever cities acknowledged him as Lord, they would call that ecclesia. These people are coming together in homes and groups and therefore may, they're having times of fellowship and times of breaking bread and times of prayer and they are calling their gathering together ecclesia in English translated church. And another, again, favorite slogan is Acts 4 and 12 then with great understanding tonight we understand then not only was Peter speaking truth concerning what he said in Acts 4 and 12 but Peter was being very intentional politically and religiously about who was the real ruler of the world because whenever they said no other name under heaven whereby a person can be saved except Caesar he says I've come here to set the record straight today there is no none other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved and the name he was referring to was Jesus Christ in other words, while the greater 
the greater empire here of Rome and even religious leaders are saying Caesar is Lord and our salvation is on Caesar and we have all our needs met because of Caesar. He said, I come to set the record straight. You are here today because of Christ Jesus. You're able to have what you have today because of him. You're alive and if you're going to be saved on any measure, it's going to be because socioeconomic class of society they were all down uh, in some mode of some level in the Roman government but Christ see he turns that type of world upside down because the Bible tells us whenever Paul was writing about Christ in Galatians 3 and verse 28 he said there is neither Jew nor Greek he said there's neither bond or free He said, there's neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ. He said, whenever you you take upon the name of Christ and you're baptized in Christ and Christ gets in you, you become a part of the body of Christ. He said, and we don't have a socioeconomic status in the body of Christ. He said, Rome's going to say success, failure, rich, poor, all this. He said, but in the body of Christ, we don't know who's rich. We don't know who's poor. We don't know who was bond. We don't know who was free. All we know is we've all been saved. We've all been redeemed. And although we may be the greatest of paupers, we are rich in Christ. Woo! Hallelujah. Amen. And so, absolutely, even without that knowledge, we know what Peter said was truth. Without that background knowledge, we know it was truth. But with that knowledge, we understand that Peter had an agenda beyond just relaying truth. He was confronting the beliefs. He was confronting the structure of the Roman Empire. And there's... There's something amazing, I think, to consider here. This guy that we call the Apostle Peter. If we go back just not too far within the New Testament, back before Calvary, back before the day of Pentecost, remember, he was denying. He was denying the Lord, even to a servant girl. Right? He was denying the Lord, even to a servant girl. But now after Pentecost, this man is willing to stand before the same council that condemned Jesus, willing to proclaim that name. Among the religious elite, even defy, if you will, the Roman Empire by doing it because he had been baptized. He'd been filled by the precious gift of the Holy Ghost. Amen. And so in light of all this tonight, in light of all this, we understand then why, everybody say why, why the religious rulers are concerned about the activity of the miracle, but more importantly, note what they ask in Scripture, the means by which the lame man was healed. Uh Uh-huh. (laughs) because whenever we look at at verse 7 of Acts 4 I think there's something vitally important there they asked the council they asked by what power or by what name 
Have ye done this? Man, I, you know, pinch me three times because I just think it's great. First of all, that the people, the religious rulers, recognize that there was a correlation between power and authority and a name. Nobody whispered anything in their ear. They understood government. Huh? They understood power of a Roman Empire. That power and authority correlates with a name. So they understood, Bishop, that there's power in a name. And so whenever they question, their question wasn't so much why did you all do a good deed to somebody that was needy? That wasn't the thrust of the question. Why did you all do a good deed to somebody who was needy? Why did you heal the lame man? That wasn't so much so. They want to know how did you do a good deed to someone that was in need? Or by what means was this good deed done for somebody that was in need? And Peter answers them very clearly. He said, it was the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Oh, their greatest fear. <laughs> their greatest fear come upon them. And Peter, not just to leave it at that, dug in just a little bit more as he has already in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter number 3. He said, Jesus of Nazareth did this, who you all crucified. And who you crucified, God raised up. And this one that you crucified and God raised up is the same name that made this man whole. He does not leave this name stuff alone, folks. He is constantly going back to it again and again. And for that matter, then Acts 4.12, neither is there salvation. So it's not only the one you crucified, it's the one that God raised up. It's the name that brought this miracle upon this man. And it's the name by which we have salvation, not Caesar. If, I, if, I, if, if the unrecorded word would be this, Jesus is Lord. Someone say amen. amen. So they're, they're, a little bit, they're a little bit uptight. Not because of what was done, but how, by which, how was it accomplished? It's accomplished by the, well, Caesar's the one supposed to be saving the people. Caesar's the one supposed to be providing for the needs of people. Caesar's the one that's supposed to bring, you know, all things back to being new and revitalizing, if you will, the world. But I read in the end of the story of the Bible, in the book of Revelation 21, there's one that sits on the throne and he says, Behold, I make all things. Behold, I make all things new. Not only that, Peter didn't just leave it at that, but he goes and pulls an Old Testament psalm. He oftentimes does this, Peter does. He make a reference to the psalm. He goes and pulls an Old Testament psalm back in verse number 11. And it says that this is the stone, speaking of this Jesus, this is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. That's a reference to Psalms 118, verse 22. It's a reference back there. Uh, in Psalms 118 and verse 22, it, it says it like this, the stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. He says, this one that you builders have set at naught, it's become the head of the corner. Might I also tell you tonight, 
that in that same, same setting of Psalms 118, not only is David talking about the stone which the builders rejected, but he also tells us the middle verse of the Bible, Psalms 118 and verse number 8. And in the middle verse, I think it's 8, in the middle, is that right? In the middle, does anybody know? <laughs> Everybody counted here lately? 8 or 10, one of those. It's the middle verse of the Bible. Psalm is the one that also says it's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Then it goes to the next one says, it's better to trust in the Lord than put confidence in princes. Amen. So it's putting all these things in order and telling us. He then later speaks even before he talks about how it's a stone that the builders rejected that became the head cornerstone. He says, for that matter, he says, salvation is of the Lord. And so he's hitting on all these things that Peter is hitting on in the book of Acts. Now note this. This is, again, just one of those random tidbits that just kind of bring just meaning sometimes to us. In one of the reference books called Historia Scholastica, amen, I'm sure you really need to know that. But nevertheless, it states concerning that verse in Psalms 118, concerning the stone that the builders rejected. They say that that verse described a literal stone that was discarded by the builders of the temple in the Old Testament. And until it was finally, until that stone was finally found to be perfectly fit for the most honorable place of the temple which was the coupling of the sides of the walls together it became the head stone of the building the thing that at first they thought this has no place when the end it was the most honorable place that it was found in we see this over and over again paul whenever while speaking to the new testament church he tells them corinthians he's talking about their forefathers verse 22 is the stone yeah Eight or ten is what's eighteen eight? Uh, yep, that's the middle verse of the Bible right there. If you just random, yeah, knowledge. Anyway, Psalms. You really impress your friends with it. You know what the middle verse of the Bible is? Psalms. Okay. I'm sure you go bring that up in your next conversation. Go try that out tomorrow, aren't you? Amen. Paul, in the New Testament in Corinthians, he starts talking about the forefathers. And he basically tells the Corinthians this, how they all passed through the river, they all passed through the Red Sea, and that Israel, all of Israel was made to drink of that spiritual rock, he said. That spiritual rock that followed them. And he then just states very plainly, that rock was Christ rock that followed them in the wilderness he said that rock was Christ and then when we get over to the New Testament then you see him talking about that there can be no other foundation that is laid than what is laid and that is Christ Jesus and he talks about the church being built upon the apostles and the prophets and Christ himself being the chief cornerstone which is a part of the foundation but then Peter brings this scripture from Psalms and Acts and talks about how he is the headstone or the head cornerstone. So we have Christ depicted as the cornerstone of the foundation of the building from where everything starts. And then you have him as the head of the corner where everything is finished. And so in scripture, we're relayed that not only do you got to start right, this thing's got to end right. And everything in between got to align with how it started and how it's finished. Yeah. Woo! Yeah. Amen. Namely, the church. 
and namely his name. Someone say his name. Jesus is his name. If you'll stand for me tonight, I'll come to a close and say, man, you're getting done early. No, we started early. And so you better just thank Jesus right now in a quiet voice. None other name. Caesar is Lord. Caesar, no, 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 no. Peter says, let me set the record straight. And they're going to contend with that now going forward for several, several other events being under the Roman Empire. This one that said that he was God incarnate is going to be dealing with the Christ Jesus who is truly the God. Not a God, the God incarnate that had been dead, Jesus that is, but came back to life and now supplying and providing salvation to everyone who would desire it and believe in him. Amen. If we can just bow our heads tonight, we'll come to a close here this evening. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you and have a blessed day.